The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles. This episode, I am in the British Virgin Islands, and today are a biologist, Leanna Jarecki, and a, uh, a law student or a lawyer, Noni uh, Georges. And uh, I'm down here because there's a very special place attached to Tortola called Beef Island. And uh, it was threatened, and the locals came together to um, stop the development. And uh, Noni is the president of, what's his title, executive director? Activities coordinator. Activities coordinator for um, the Virgin Island Environmental Council. Noni, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> and then Leanna um, Jarecki. Leanna, you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi. Hi. So, Leanna, I had the privilege of going out with you into salt ponds on the Beef Island yesterday, and that was just amazing. Why are these salt ponds so important? Right. The salt ponds on Beef Island are important because, well, for so many reasons, but they are a unique habitat in the world in that they're extremely salty, but they function as our only wetlands in the BVI. And as many people around the world know that uh, wetlands are important as a filtering mechanism to keep the water clean. Water is Clean water here in the BVI is especially important because coral reefs and seagrass beds and all of our fisheries depend on clean water that the sunlight can reach the bottom of. And there are so many impacts in the BVI that disrupt the water quality, like development that causes increased erosion and uh, septic, sewage leakage that cause eutrophication or higher nutrients in the water. And wetlands can process runoff water that carries all these things in a way that leaves the water clean when it gets to the ocean and therefore promotes the growth of reefs and, and seagrasses, which of course then promote the growth of things that we love and eat, like conch and reef fish, um, even pelagic fish, lobsters, etc. and of course the things that people like to see when they're diving. Specifically, so a lot of the big, a lot of the big fish, they spend some of their childhood in there? Yes, the, the mangroves and the seagrasses are really thought of as nurseries and that um, many of the commercially caught fish, including the bigger ones, um, are spend their larval and their young stages in mangroves and seagrasses and back reef areas before they move out to reefs and even into um, pelagic areas. Well, it's really excellent that you are educating people because um, it's not obvious. You know, you, you go elsewhere to, find, to catch the big fish, but... 
We need to protect these coastal areas for the, the, the nurseries of the big fish. Now, you, you are good into a salt pond, and it was pretty black and mucky. Why was that? Yeah, so the salt ponds are not specifically the areas where the fish come in to breed, uh, sorry, to, to grow up, obviously. It's more the mangrove lagoons. But the salt ponds are unique. Like I said, they're saltier than the sea, so they have a rather extreme environment that fluctuates with dry and wet periods. So they can get, some of them get actually salty enough to precipitate salt. And, um, you know, people take salt crystals out of that and then, and then cook with it. But salt precipitates at about 10 times the concentration of seawater. So the one we went in yesterday, even though it's a very salty pond as ponds go, it only gets to about seven or eight times seawater salinity at the driest periods. And then when it rains, the salinity drops. And the things that live in it, which are mostly um, small invertebrates and bacterial mats, need to deal with an extremely variable and a uh, harsh environment. As you can imagine, it's not only high salinity, but salinity itself, once it gets higher, leads to hotter temperatures and lower oxygen. So the things that live in, in the pond, which may not be very showy, are extremely adapted to a, a harsh environment and have incredible physiologies. Um, brine shrimp are really the classic or the poster child of, of invertebrates in salt ponds. And um, they are red because they pack their their tissues with hemoglobin. And hemoglobin, as we know, is important for picking up oxygen, which is important to the brine shrimp as well because the the oxygen levels are so low when the salinity gets high. But one of the even more interesting things that they do is by packing their tissues with hemoglobin, they fight the osmotic counterforce of the water. So if you imagine living with permeable tissue in a highly saline environment, all the water in your body would rush out to, you know, through the force of osmosis. But if you pack it with right. some kind of yeah, solute, then it won't. And they actually use hemoglobin to do both, to both even the osmotic score and to pick up more oxygen in their tissues. And each of the organisms that live in there has some unique and, and really incredible way of dealing with these harsh environments. All of them have to deal with complete desiccation at some points when the ponds, some of the ponds dry out completely, and then they just spring back to life as soon as it rains. And in addition, there are cycles. So at lower salinities, we have a certain fauna in the ponds, and then at higher salinities, it changes to ones that are even more tolerant, like the brine shrimp and the brine flies. Mm. And there's blue-green algae on the bottom? Yes, yeah, so the b- blue-green algae is really the base of the food chain in this, in this unique environment, and they are salinity-adapted. Um, they're photosynthesizers, so they are on the bottom, and the very, very top layer of the bottom muck or the bottom sediment is usually a mix of diatoms and blue-green algae that are photosynthesizing. Now, clearly diatoms would only live in slightly lower salinity ponds and when I'm talking about lower salinity, I'm still talking about higher than seawater, so it's all relative. Um, but if you look at the mats, and we did yesterday, you see a lot of layers in a very, very short distance. So we peeled up this kind of gelatinous layer on the surface of the mud, and <clears throat> that was the bacterial mat. And again, the very top layers are photosynthetic, and those are usually uh, cyanobacteria, blue-green algae. And then below that, 
are other bacteria that can sort of feed off dying blue-green algae cells but are still in an aerobic environment where oxygen leads to. But below them are anaerobic bacteria that are also heterotrophic and some which are even chemoautotrophs, so they can reduce sulfur and things like that. Um, And the really fascinating thing about these bacterial mat is that within about a two-millimeter film or layer of this jelly on top of the pond, uh, pond sediment, it's not on top of the water, it's on top of the, the sediment, um, is that the system of those bacteria that they actually feed each other. So there's a whole, what they call a microcosm that where energy is recycled in the first two millimeters of this mud. But one of the really fascinating things, which I think I held back from you yesterday, is oh. that uh, once I, I met some researchers from NASA that were that were trying to identify a easy tracer, an easy chemical tracer for life on other planets. And it was thought that these cyanobacteria were the first form of life on Earth and that, in fact, they, they dominated the Earth for a billion, I think a billion years before, or two billion years before any other life even showed up. So the thinking is that if we found an early form of life on another planet, it would likely be these cyanobacterial mats. And so they were studying these mats to figure out what kind of chemical tracer they might leave behind that, uh, you know, one of our shuttles or our, or our uh, exploration, space exploration machines could just take a sample of rock and we could do this chemical test and decide whether it was a sign of, of life of bacterial mats at some point in the island's history or even presently. That's amazing. You had spacemen coming to look in the Beef Island salt pond for um, the cyano-blue-green bacteria and algae. Yes. Wow. Did they yeah, find they were life? with our map, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I'm sorry, say that again? I said they were fascinated with the mats on, uh, in, in our salt ponds because they grow so thick, and then there's actually a variety of them depending on which pond you're in. Yes. And what kind of birds do we see? Well, um, in the BVI, uh, most of our species of birds are dependent, uh, certainly the, the wetland birds, are dependent on salt ponds um, exclusively because we have no freshwater habitats. We don't have lakes, we don't have rivers, and all of our wetland birds like uh, ducks, stilts, sandpipers, plovers, Herons, all of them rely specifically on the salt pond habitat. And um, typically, we see all year round living in our ponds, we see the black neck stilt, we see white-cheeked pintails, ducks, we see um, semi-palmated sandpipers very commonly, the yellow legs, uh, and there are several more. But during migrations, uh, we have great numbers of wetland birds that come from North America and overwinter here or even just go through and pass somewhere southwest of us. And the salt ponds are an incredibly important resource for those birds because as extreme a habitat as they are, the few things, the few invertebrates that are able to live on them are free from, from competition that you would normally experience in a, in a nicer environment to live in. So yes. the fact that, that those few, few invertebrates, the few invertebrate species, our release from normal competition means that they get to huge numbers. So there are times when even that pond that we visited can just look like a soup of brine shrimp. 
Um, or at other times, in the, yesterday I, I saw some water boatmen in that pond, which is also a, a favored food of some of the sandpipers and the stilts, of course. So they can reach huge numbers. And they, they mostly do that in the winter when we have a little more rain, and also that coincides with the bird migrations. So our ponds are able to support the migrations of water birds through the BVI uh, as a, a food resource and also a, a place, a stopover place. Tell us again the birds that you you said that we saw the black-legged stilt. We saw the black-necked stilt. <laughs> black-necked stilt. Yeah. We, Can you do a call? <laughs> I've never tried that before, Ross. <laughs> um, I was seeing a bird and you knew it by the call. That was impressive. Yes, I can recognize it by the call. I think I might get it confused with a uh, with a kestrel because it sounds. Uh, I'm I'm going to mess it up, Rob. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It gets kind of a squeaky high whistling call. Yes. Um, okay, we're going to be back after this break with Leanna Jarecki from the British Virgin Islands talking about beef island salt ponds. Conscious trends and lifestyles. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa provides homeowners and investors eager to invest well in real estate the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus will be the paradigm. Live where you want. Invest where it makes the most sense. Listen live to the brightest minds in real estate investment every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa, where America learns to invest. Leadership is a destination, but how do you get there? More importantly, how do you maximize your power and influence and develop more leaders in your organization? Learn from proven leaders and proven practices. Join Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler for Leadership Development News. This program will help you develop the next leaders in your organization, balance your work life, manage your boss, and manage yourself. We'll feature cutting-edge interviews with industry experts and authors. Leadership Development News, every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. Eco-conscious trends and lifestyles. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Let me, let me 
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Today we're talking about the British Virgin Islands, and in particular, Beef Island, which is next to Tortola, is undeveloped and has wild sections upon it, uh, including uh, many salt ponds. Uh, You see three coming in, but um, uh, is it really three there? Uh, No, actually there are five. Um, There are three very large ones that are easy to see from the air. But there are two others that one is actually also large, but it has uh, mangrove trees all through it, and therefore it's not quite as obvious from the air. And then another one is just a fringe along the coast, um, which gets wet sometimes and other other times. <clears throat> so right. the, the greatest concentration yeah. of salt ponds in that size space in all of the BVI. Yes. And for quite a ways around beyond that, I would think, too. Yes. Uh, tell, us about, tell us about the mangroves. Why are mangroves important? Mangroves are um, very interesting species of plants that can live in salty, wet water uh, and have also incredible physiological adaptations for being able to get the salt out of their tissues or, or extract it from the water and um, actually remove it before the water comes in, and also to get oxygen to their roots. And they're important because they, their roots then protect the coastline and hold it together in places where no other plant could grow. And in addition to that, they are very um, good at sucking nutrients out of the water that their roots are living in, which, as I talked about before, was a major function of our salt ponds, was cleaning water and, and being able to remove nutrients. They also create sort of a very thick, tangled mass of roots that slows down runoff water and allows um, a greater residence time in the wetland, which allows sediment to come out of the water and also allows cyanobacteria to pull nutrients out of the water so that it's so much cleaner when it gets into the ocean. And mangroves also um, provide a habitat for wildlife. We talked before about fish nurseries, that young fish spend their time among mangrove roots, and... um, a lot of birds use mangroves to uh, roost in or even nest in. Um, we know that species like the mangrove cuckoo is specific to mangrove areas in the BVI. The white-crowned pigeon, which is a threatened species, um, is associated with mangroves. Yellow warblers, we saw a yellow warbler yesterday, which is a unusual find. Yes. We would see that outside of a mangrove area. And then, of course, there's many herons, one of the most interesting um, Oh, sorry, that's not a heron. <laughs> One of the most interesting birds is um, a rail that lives in the BVI that is uh, associated only with mangroves and a very, very secret, secretive bird. It's a clapper rail. So there's a lot of interesting things about mangroves, both for their own physiology, for their, their value as a, as a wildlife habitat, and for ecological services that they provide to hold the coastline and protect the coastline. You probably know that in the BVI... Um, there's a premium on a on a lagoon here, several lagoons here that 
that charter boats use to bring their boats in during hurricane season as it's the most effective way to protect their property, their boats, from damage during hurricanes. Again, because the mangroves are so good at breaking the waves and holding the land together that the boats, when put behind the mangroves, are in no danger at all. When we were at the salt pond, you pointed out the red mangrove. It looked like all trees all over circling this pond, and yet you pointed out the red mangrove as an indicator? Yeah, the, um, the red mangrove is, of the four species that we have, puts its roots really in only in seawater salinity, and anything more saline than seawater salinity it can't grow in, where some of the other species can. So one of the interesting things about that pond is it had a patch of red mangroves, and at that patch there's um, a kind of a cut that comes through the berm to the ocean, and it's closed in now, and it's not entirely obvious, but there are some anecdotal references to um, an opening in that pond that people would traditionally use to bring their own um, boats in a hundred years ago, and they would actually keep that cut open so that they could bring their boats in during hurricane season. Yes. Leanna, there's been an effort for flamingos. Can you talk to us about flamingos? Yeah, that's probably our showiest salt pond specialist. Um, flamingos are really adapted to salt ponds, never mind mangroves. They really like hypersaline water, and there are seven species all over the world which all like hypersaline wetlands, some of them high in the mountains and some of them on the coast. The Caribbean flamingo is the, the most colorful of all the flamingos, and it was um, known from the British Virgin Islands. As a matter of fact, there's a couple ponds around that uh, have the name Flamingo Pond, including one that was filled in for, for a, a waste disposal site. So we know that flamingos were here and nested up until about the 1940s, but then were gone. And in 1991, there was a big conservation effort through the conservation agency in Rhode Island and also um, the Bermuda Aquarium and Zoo partnering, partnering with the National Parks Trust here in the BVI and also Guana Island Wildlife Sanctuary. And they brought in 20 flamingos to reintroduce to Anagata, which has the largest of our salt ponds. But Anagata is a very flat island, very different from Beef Island. And it's been an extremely successful project in that since 1991, those 20 flamingos have managed to breed nearly every year. And there are now nearly 200 flamingos all born uh, in the wild on Anagata. And we are now starting to see some of those flamingos visit other islands as they, they naturally do. They naturally live on one pond, and because they're colonial birds, they like to live in, in mass. But a single pond can't support their population, so they have to make trips to other ponds to feed. And in addition, as I said, these ponds are extremely variable, so a pond might be full of food at, in one month and then going through a transition, and the invertebrates won't be there the next month. So these birds need a network of salt ponds to survive. And we're starting to see some flamingos come into the ponds of Beef Island now to feed. Yes, yes. Uh, if people want to see this, they can go to OceanRiver.org and look at the VIEC, and we have photographs of flamingos strutting their stuff in front of the mangroves of Beef Island. Uh, Leanna, what, what's going on with um, ponds and uh, conservation effort you were telling me about? Yeah, I've been very concerned about um, really how many salt ponds we need in the BVI to support 
not just the flamingos, of course, but all of the migratory and resident wading birds that we have um, come through here in the winter and, and reside here all year round. And the problem, as I said, is that birds need more than one pond, and I think that's the understanding that that is true is, is, uh, is not very well understood. In addition, no one has answered the question of, well, how many ponds do we really need? And I think that we probably need every pond that still exists. Uh, what I've calculated in my research is that on Tortola, we've lost 80% of the original ponds um, since the 50s. And that's a, a huge loss. And I think certainly the populations of, res of uh, migratory birds that have depended on these ponds have gone down. And that's not only significant for the BVI, but for the countries that they come from in North America and the rest of the Caribbean where they might migrate through after stopping here. So it's mm. a real international issue of, you know, these ponds being significant for migratory birds means as we lose our ponds, we're also affecting international bird populations. Yes, because there's stopover places to recharge. Beef Island, like I said, is the, the, has the greatest number of ponds in a small area in all of the VVI, but it's also... Uh, even though it's a beef island, a separate island, there's just a, a short bridge that separates it from Tortola. So it's accessible to everyone on Tortola, which is the main island in the BVI where most of our population is. Beef Island is also where our airport is, so it's where all the visitors come in. And these ponds are the ones that you can still see without basically taking a boat or a flight to another island. Um, <clears throat> and so they're an incredible educational resource. There, as I always feel like when I go there, I'm I'm in the wilderness in a way that I can't be anywhere else on Tortola. It really was remarkable. I had to have lunch at Trellis Bay, and then uh, we just went across a little bit across the island, and off we went into the into the jungle, I guess. Uh, but just phenomenal things we saw. Um, there were these orchids you found me. Yes, the uh, the orchids that I showed you, which were extremely abundant out there and growing on this dead coral rubble with not a grain of soil in sight, um, in a very hot, very dry environment. But look, look, they were so thick it was like looking at a lawn, and they're beautiful, yeah. delicately striped, purpley white. Um, well, really white flowers with purple stripes, and uh, they they grow all over the coral berm that separates this pond from the sea. And I have not seen a population of orchids so thick, of that specific orchid so thick anywhere in the BVI, but certainly I haven't seen that orchid growing anywhere else on Tortola, although I'm sure a botanist could correct me. There's probably one or two hiding somewhere in a similar habitat. But out there is really incredible. And it's not the only orchid species we saw. We also saw... Um, <clears throat> Other orchids that are more typical of forests in the BVI, which are all epiphytic, they grow in on other trees, unlike the orchid that's so common out there, which grows on the ground. And then you started picking up the rocks and showing me coral heads. Yeah, that's one thing I find fascinating out there. Again, this the berm or the the, the high point that separates the pond from the sea, because the sea is at, sorry, the pond is really at sea level, and and what separates it is this berm of coral that probably originated as a fringing reef and then the sea threw up coral on top of it and created a high point which was then colonized by probably by mangroves and then later by trees. But you can go and up there today. And it can corns and what, what yeah. kind of corals do you see there? 
Right. So you can go out there today and see all of the remnants of these coral pieces and, and still identify them. So they're elkhorn coral pieces and brain corals. And uh, we even saw some old shells of apple murexes and, and clams. And I mean, it's really like a whole uh, geology lesson when you go out there and are just seeing these ancient pieces of corals and marine animals um, almost fossilized. You know, they're not embedded in rock, but they are rock. Sitting right there. Thank you, Anna. Leanna, we have to interrupt for an ad, but we'll be oh. back with Leanna Jerky and Noni Georges to talk about Beef Island after the break. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Hi, this is Dr. Vijaya Nair. Together with my dear friend, Dr. Howard Piper, we are hosting our own show called Kiss Your Life Hello. We are two internationally recognized experts, researchers, authors, and health advocates in holistic medicine and counseling. We promise you a fantastic show with interesting guest experts to educate and entertain you with the latest information on mind, body, and spirit wellness. Join us on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. See you there. Hey, football fans, are you ready for an intelligent discussion about the Buffalo Bills and the National Football League? Are you tired of listening to talk show hosts that have never played football? Instead of answering your questions, they prefer to listen to themselves. And when they don't like what you're saying, they just cut you off. Well, that won't happen on the Jeff Nixon Sports Report. Keep it clean, stay relatively calm and rational, and the discussion will flow well. Join Jeff Nixon Monday afternoons at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Sports Network. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Today we're talking about... Beef Island in the British Virgin Islands, and they uh, suffered a major setback when there were plans to develop Beef Island. 
the whole island, we've been hearing from Dr. Jarecki about the importance of salt ponds, and these were all threatened. And a lawyer came to town, or a solicitor came to town, named Muta Ito, and uh, she set right to with a will trying to figure out how to um, slow down this development plan or stop it. And she came across a paper by uh, Noni Georges, and Noni's here, and Noni ended up kind of pulling together the whole uh, Virgin Island Environmental Council. She had the expertise. <laughs> She's so modest. But she was a student. You were at the Bahamas studying? Barbados. Barbados. Um, tell us more. <laughs> okay, well, um, in January of 2007, I think, the government approved finally for after many, many years, um, a development project for Beef Island. And um, from the date that they approved it, we apparently had six months to, to get it challenged. Um, for my senior paper at um, law school, I, was, I did law school in Barbados at the University of the West Indies. And for my senior paper, I had looked at the potential um, development of Beef Island and whether or not this was in compliance with the environmental law and found that um, there was a good case of saying that it wasn't in compliance with the law. Um, and uh, after the approval came down, or actually even before, from the time they started having, having public meetings, um, there were a group of people here that um, eventually became called the Fisher Persons and Concerned Citizens for the Protection of Beef Island. And this was a large group of local people um, spearheaded um, a lot by Fisher Persons. And persons from all over the island, not just the area close to Beef Island, that came together and had meetings and they held rallies and they um, did petition and a t-shirt, no fish, no fundi, save our culture, save our youth. And they they started the Save the Beef Island movement. I mean, at the time they were doing this, I was still doing um, finals in law school. I wasn't even at home for most of it. But, I mean, I was involved. I used to write letters and um, help draft letters and the petition and so on. Um, but I was doing my finals. And that summer... Um, after school closed, before I went to the other part of law school, um, Monta tried to get in touch with me about this paper because she had been here in the BBI and she was um, interested in doing, you know, some type of community work. And someone told her about, you know, this project and about my paper. And, you know, she went and met some of the folks in the Fisher Persons group um, and they told her how to get in touch with me, and, and she found me, and then we talked about it a little bit. And uh, I'm not really quite clear what happened after that. <laughs> I think marathon. worked quite hard. Um, I think it was like mid to late July. It was about yeah, early to mid July when she finally got in touch with me because I'd been traveling that summer as well, and um. I think someone had told them initially, the group who was here, who had been, like, talking with her, that there wasn't a deadline. I was like, oh, no, there is a deadline. I'm sure I came across it in my paper. It wasn't in the piece of legislation that they thought it was in. It was in another piece. So I found the reference, and there was a six-month deadline um, to file an application to challenge the permission. And by the time we found out there was a deadline, I think we had something like 
seven days <laughs> to, <laughs> to put the whole thing together. All-nighters. Yeah, there were several all-nighters. Um, I had a friend who was visiting me from overseas, and I don't think uh, he slept for the entire weekend he was there because he was a law student as well. And, you know, so we were working out of somebody's basement. We got all these boxes of papers, and we had to sort them and figure out, well, what goes in the case, what goes out of the case, and get all of the witness statements and so on. And Mumta was directing all of this because um, in, to this point in my studies, like, I hadn't done any of that type of procedural work. Like, I really didn't know what happened. <laughs> After you do the legal analysis, what comes next? I didn't know any of that. And, I mean, Mumta was just a godsend. Like, she pulled everything together. She was like, okay, this is what you do. Um, she got the group incorporated because at that time it really was just an association of people. And I mean, really, all of her who were um, meeting and, you know, trying to, trying to do something about it. Um, so she got the group incorporated. Um, Dr. Letson was appointed as our first um, chairman, yes. chair director. Yeah. Um, Courtney. And I think there are a couple others. And um, Sheila as well, because, you know, she was president of the Fishermen's Association at the time. Um, and so with the people we had starting, um, and, you know, she helped us do the paperwork, um, you know, and showed me what to do. So I got some yeah. experience in how you put these types of things together. And, you know, we really just sat there and typed it up and eventually filed it. We made the deadline. We made the deadline. So it happened that... Uh, you did make a deadline, and then it moved to a different level where Lumta was off trying to find uh, barristers because being a British territory, the Virgin Islands Environmental Council had to bring barristers in from London. Well, what actually happened was we couldn't find anyone locally who would do it for uh, us because, well, you know, um, we didn't have any money. And it was a real political issue as well. Um, so... It's hard for people to speak out because of the families and Yeah, there is a documented fear of um, speaking out on public issues. Like, I don't mean literally documented in human rights reports and so on. Um, so, I don't know, Monta, again, being godsend, um, when she returned to the U.K., she started trying to talk to people about her case, and she managed to find a really, really good environmental law team to take to take the case. So I'm getting interested in taking the case. Um, and that's how it ended up getting into court. You know, at the first hearing we had, it was like just me and Dr. West. <laughs> we didn't know what on earth we were doing. <laughs> but, um, you know, by... Everybody else had the black robes on and the white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mumsa was great, you know. She found um, a volunteer who came one time um, to do one of the hearings. Um, and, you know, he just volu he volunteered his time and came and did one of the hearings for us. And then afterwards, she was able to get us a legal team at Six Pump Court in the U.K. with um, Stephen Hotland QC, who is one of the leading environmental lawyers in the U.K. He's presently working on trying to um, convince governments to set up an international environmental court, something like the International Court of Justice, but this one's an environmental court. And um, because it was such a... Keep 
because it was such a landmark case um, in the Caribbean, especially for the Virgin Islands, we never had an environmental case before. Nobody had ever challenged the government on an environmental issue. Never, no. Um, you know, they were interested in taking the case and setting this this precedent for the region. So, um, and that's all thanks for months of work. Well, it takes a village to to sue the developers. It's, well, it wasn't we didn't sue the developers, believe it or not. Well, you filed something. It wasn't against them. No, it wasn't against them. <laughs> we did not sue the developers. So I was up in Cambridge with the Ocean River Institute, and uh, a West Ender bumped into me in the post office and said, help, we need help uh, raising funds to bring the barristers in. And so that's how the Ocean River Institute got involved. And we uh, put out an alert to 18,000 eco-stewards, and about 8,000 of them wrote in why they care about Beef Island, why they should keep the salt ponds, keep the mangrove swamps, keep the fisheries protected area. And we were able to bind that into a four-inch notebook with personal comments. And it's, I'm now proud to say it's in the library here in Roadtown. And it was presented to the chief minister, uh, town and country, and the tourist board. So it became a call for, you know, the, the, the tourists for whom the economy depends on here. Uh, many of them do care deeply about natural areas and having a natural experience when they come here to uh, to Tortola, the British Virgin Islands. Eventually, uh, well, and then we have to fly the, the barristers in, and it's quite expensive flying first class into BBI. And fortunately, Sir Richard Branson helped us by bringing the cost down uh, substantially, and that, that was a big help. And then uh, the case was won. The justice decided to quash the development plans. And uh, so we celebrated for a short while, and then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> and then they appealed. <laughs> so so um, where it stands right now is we have won the first round. And, well, I didn't tell, tell them why it was illegal. Um, basically what happens is that um, one of those great – well, it's not the pond. Hans Creek isn't a pond, right, Anna? Anna's still there. I'm still here. Okay. Yeah, well, um, one of the great areas in um, Beef Island is called Hens Creek um, Lagoon, and it's actually a fisheries-protected area. And um, it's adjacent to two of the salt ponds, the little one that's um, dried part of the year and um, one of the other ones. And it's a fisheries-protected area, and under our fisheries law, it says that um, no development can take place that may negatively impact the um, a fisheries protected area negatively impact its environment. And um, the golf course for this development, this mega development they were slated to put here, um, initially they had sighted it like 10 feet from the fisheries protected area. And there's actually one of the holes for the golf course is, within, is inside on a little key in the fisheries protected area. And the mouth of the marina opens like, you know, I don't know, 20 feet or 50 feet, like, up from the boundary of the fisheries protected area, but you look on it on a map and it's like opening right next to the fisheries protected area, the mouth of this proposed marina, because they were going to um, excavate the pond to put this marina in. And they're like, well, if that's going to negatively impact the fisheries protected area, how can you approve that development when the law says you can't do that in a fisheries protected area? And basically that's, that's what the decision came down to. The judge agreed that. Um, well, we got a very limited decision, but basically said that 
you know, the part of this development will impact the fisheries protected area, and accordingly, the uh, development permission is um, against the law, yes. contravenes the law. So we'll be right back with Noni Georges and Leanna Jarecki from the British Virgin Islands after this break. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Best Boomer Towns delivers the inside scoop on the best 21 places to relocate or retire in the U.S. Listen to columnists, town bloggers, and local residents as we highlight a town each week. Talk show host Nancy Shaka brings you the best and the brightest. As a baby boomer, you experienced Beatlemania, Woodstock, Vietnam, and the women's movement. Today, you're educated, health-minded, and thinking about where to spend your future. Tune in at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, to Best Boomer Towns every Thursday on the Voice America Variety Channel and start planning the best rest of your life. Eco-conscious trends and lifestyles. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. With me today is Noni Georges and Leanna Jawecki. And we're talking about Beef Island next to Tortola and the British Virgin Islands. And Noni was telling us how what went into setting up a case to stop developers from destroying the islands, the salt ponds and the mangrove swamps. 
And um, there were you had to get other people to to do things. Um, well, yeah. In addition to Liana, who I love, and <laughs> there were a couple um, other like local scientists as well that you know helped put together witness statements. Um, one of them's doing her doctorate right now, Cassandra O'Neill, and the other one's at the college, Orville Phillips. And um, I mean, between the two of them, because I used to get discouraged a lot, and I'd say, well, you know, is it really worth it to, like, fight for this? And then they talk about how important the ecology was and that, yes, it is really worth it, and, you know, we don't have anything like this left here in the BVI, and we do have to try to fight to save it. And, you know, they give me all of the lectures about yeah. <laughs> the fish and everything, and then I'd be like, okay, yeah, it really is worth it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to trust them on this because they've all got that background in biology and so on. Leanna, you were telling me of some people that helped out as well, um, um, like Clive and survey. Yeah, uh, what I mentioned to you was actually uh, part of the environmental impact assessment, which... It was interesting because the, there was a scoping study for it, which Island Resources Foundation did, and they're the ones who identified you know, a huge number of birds that we didn't know about, um, which was really Clive Petrovic's specialty, uh, and plants in particular. There's quite a number of rare plants on the hillsides uh, around on, on Beef Island, and they really documented that as part of the scoping study. In addition, there was a study that um, ICLARM, which I think now is, I can't remember, fish base or something. Um, <clears throat> when they were here years ago, they did a study in Hands Creek, which is the fisheries protected area, showing that the greatest diversity of juvenile, sorry, juveniles of commercially fished species uh, come into Hands Creek to spend their young lives of any site that they studied around the BVI. And so they were the first to really prove the importance of Hands Creek for fisheries, which originally yes. led to this whole effort to make it a fisheries protected area, which came through conservation. Um, <clears throat> so then the people at Island Resources Foundation, like Cavell Lindsay, um, who's originally from Antigua but works out of New York now, uh, documented the, the rare plants, and Clive Petrovic, who's been in the BVI forever, <laughs> uh, documented all the birds. Uh, I worked on the salt ponds, of course. But then after that, the... Um, the developers chose a different company, actually an international company, to do the final environmental impact assessment. Um, so they elaborated on it to a certain extent, but I think most of the, the notable wildlife was pointed out during those early days <laughs> of the EIA. Oh, and as you land and saying early days, it also reminds me that the area that they're talking about, that we're talking about, Hands Creek, was um, actually identified, um, I guess it's like nearly 30 years now, 30 years ago in a study that was done of the British Virgin Islands and selected as one of the um, sites that ought to be protected because of its um, diversity and, you know, that it was representative of, it was a good, pristine representation of um, a type of ecosystem here um, and that it should be included in the park system and included in our protected areas. So, while they have, like, for a very long time, there's been talk about um, putting a big development on Beef Island, but for an equally long time, there's been talk about protecting, in particular, this area, Hands Creek, and um, one of the other areas over on, on Mount Almeray, you know, where the scrub forest is. Um, yeah. 
where you found some of the rare plants. The Mount Alma? Yes. Okay, yeah. So there's been talk about protecting eateries like for for a long time and um to be a national trust. Well, put, whether putting them in the National Parks Trust or, yeah, including them in that system, um, it it was proposed, like, forever as well, you know. So it wasn't just, like, the um, the developer came along and said, oh, I'm going to put a hotel here, and then everybody's like, oh, all of a sudden, oh, no, it's important. It's really been, you know, noted and important for a long time. And actually, when we were putting together the case and putting together Vianna's witness statement, I found, like, Letter she'd written like 10 years ago or 15 years ago saying, you know, I've heard that there might be a development here and I want to say that, you know, this area is important and it should be protected. And, you know, I have a couple of those that we put in and she was like, wow, I can't believe that these actually came to something because sometimes you're concerned about something and you write a letter and you send it into the government or the representative or whatever and you think, oh, nothing's ever going to come of it. But something did eventually come of it because you can document that, you know, it's not just yesterday I turned around and said, hey, this is important like we've been saying this for a very long time so i think that that was an important part of our case as well thank you i was very so pleased to see the letter again <laughs> and i i was i realized it had been important to someone when i realized that bert Letson had kept it for 15 years <laughs> only to pick it up when he needed it which was great <laughs> this was the minister of fisheries so it was the highest government official oh no bert, bert was our Bert's the Chief Conservation and Fisheries Officer. Uh, uh, so it was in government. It's important that government people are holding on. Yeah, Bert, Bert was really, really good on this case as well because he has the entire history in his head, you know, the entire history of the case um, and the whole beef island situation is in his head. Yes, it, it takes a village to, to save a <laughs> beef island. And I think Bert... I suspect, I like to tease, right? I think he must have personally drafted that provision in the Fisheries Act that this development eventually got hung up on. I don't know that for sure, though. No, he probably wants to keep a little profile. That's just my suspicion. Um, And it's wonderful to see the energy goes on, that people have gotten results from speaking up to save Beef Island, and now they they are empowered to continue to the long slog to keep protecting things, and I see you're looking more broadly about maybe helping people get more organized about an incinerator that's out there or about uh, runoff and, of nutrients and, and erosion of sediments and stuff. Well, well, I guess from the Environmental Council, um, it really did, a lot of the pressure at the time we started did come from the fisher persons and concerned citizens for the protection of beef island, which led to the Environment Council. And for the whole time that the council has been in operation so far, it's really just been totally, totally consumed with trying to fight this legal battle. Um, but your road race on Sunday. <laughs> right. But, I mean, for at least the last year or so, you know, everybody's been like, well, we want to get more um, involved, broaden our focus. So last Sunday that just went, um, we had signed on and we participated in the international the Dow Live Earth um, run for water that was taking taking place around the world. So we had a good little run here at Long Bay West End, Portola, <laughs> with a gorgeous T-shirt by Kenny Tees. Um, and uh, we're hoping that over the next year or so, you know, the council will be able to start doing more work in the community and raising awareness on other issues 
you know, I'm trying to just um, bring more environmental awareness to to the population, more environmental education and support initiatives that are going on by other groups and persons in the community um, on environmental issues. Thank you. If you want to read about the court case, see photographs, you can go to OceanRiver.org, and under VIC are various uh, pages about the whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, as we as we finish up, I want to thank Leanna. Thank you for um, bringing us all your knowledge of the wildlife out there. You're very welcome. And I want to thank Millie Georges for coming back to the island and picking up the fight and working, pulling all-nighters and still being a happy person at the end of it. (laughs) Um, Thanks, Rob. And uh, if there's one thing that your listeners can do for me, like right now we really need to put together proposals for alternative development should be silent. I mean, we have an appeal to site, but people are saying, if you're saying don't develop, what should you do next? So any kind of information on eco, hotel, ecological building and design, better alternatives than just some big hotel, marina, golf course. Eco-friendly. Yeah. One eco-friendly development. Yeah. Email it to Rob and he'll send it to us. Thank you very much. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Rock me.